Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning. So my name's uh, Jim Carafano. I oversee all the foreign and national security policy here at the Heritage Foundation. And either Congressman McCall has gotten a lot taller or he's delayed uh, with votes, which is he's delayed with votes. So that's okay. So we're going to get started and we'll pick up the conversation when um, Congressman McCall gets here. And um, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and introduce him now. So when he gets here, we can get started. And you guys, when he comes in, just give him a big round of applause and tell him I did a great job. Um, I love Congressman McCall. So I'm glad he's not here because I can say really effusive things about him and he won't think I'm, I'm, um, buttering up. So as, as you know, he is currently the, um, ranking member on the House uh, Foreign Affairs Committee. But before that, um, we worked with Congressman McCall for many years. Uh, when he was chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee. And uh, he's a great I, – I think he's just a great um, public servant. Uh, before that, he was uh, Texas Deputy Attorney General. Uh, he's got a graduate from uh, Harvard University. Um, he served as a federal prosecutor. But he really has dedicated his life to public service, and he's a creative, innovative um, thinker, and uh, and there are so many <laughs> issues going on in the world, I mean, especially just in the last week. There's probably enough issues to cover the universe. So to have him here and just kind of an open discussion um, will be great, and I promise you I will – um, try. I'll keep the discussion really short and try even you know to get as much um, time with uh, with you guys asking questions you have. So have your questions ready and and we'll try to do that because we really meant this to be an open format to let you understand kind of what his priorities are, um, but also kind of how he's thinking about what's going in the news today. So this is JV Venable and um, why it's great to have JV here is he is he's actually just back from um, a trip in Romania. JV is a retired F sixteen pilot. Um, he's been in Heritage for several years. He's one of our key defense analysts. And um, what's great about getting our defense guys into the, some of the foreign policy stuff is they bring with them their kind of very um, strong military knowledge, and they bring that into this world of, of foreign policy. And uh, particularly with the state of the transatlantic community today and some of the issues, I thought it'd be great for uh, for us to pick his brain while we're waiting for him. So actually – one of the questions I would, was going to ask Chairman McCall, and it's a perfect question for for JV as um, a former F-16 pilot, and as a guy who's probably done more research, more in-depth research on the F-35 than any human being alive, including writing, I think, one of the most fascinating papers where he's interviewed 30 
F-35 pilots. So he's, he's probably talked to more F-35 pilots in the Air Force. And uh, as a former fighter pilot himself, I think has a better understanding of that aircraft and its capability than, than almost anybody alive. And one of the, the key foreign policy issues today is we have two countries, which uh, one is a formal ally, one's a strategic part of the United States, India and Turkey, both of which, uh, in the case of Turkey's actually bought the S-400. Uh, India has talked and been in talks to buy the S-400. And the issues that raises for the United States, uh, particularly in the case of Turkey, because Turkey is a partner in the production of the F-35 and has actually already owned some F-35s. So um, what is this a real problem for a country like Turkey to be having an F-35 and an S-400? And uh, uh, let's start there. Is that, a, is that a real foreign policy crisis for the bilateral relationship between the United States and Turkey and for, for the, the, how that all fits into the context of NATO? Jim, it's a great question, and uh, thank you for uh, inviting me in. Thank you for putting up with me for a couple minutes. I'll try to keep my answers short uh, so that when the congressman comes in that we can go right into that. It is a significant issue, pairing the S-400 with uh, the F-35. Um, you uh, all are, are not really in-depthly involved with this like I am, but we do these things that are, are really simplistic with airplanes. We'll stick them up on literal sticks that have the ability to rotate, and we'll put them about a half a mile away from a radar, and we'll just inundate it with radar beams of every type and variety. And we call that characterizing the platform. And what that allows us to do is to find out where the vulnerabilities are for the F-35 when it's radar signature is what we call it, how far away you can see it, um, where that vulnerability lies with each of the individual radar systems. And so us giving the, the, the Turks uh, the F-35 with the S-400 system would allow either Turkey or their good friends, Russia, to characterize the F-35 and therefore nullify the advantage that we've got with this very expensive and very capable platform. We've got about a 10 or 15-year competitive advantage over every other system in the world by buying this stealth fighter, and we don't want to give that up. Well, what about the argument, which I've heard some people say, is, well, this is not a problem. Turkey will just put the S-400 over here, and we'll just fly the F-35 over there. In a, a perfect world where you trust everyone at all times, I guess that might work. Um, but one of the things that I would actually turn this around and say, well, Turkey, why don't you allow us to have one of those S-400 <laughs> systems, and we'll keep that over here, and we won't ever pair it up with one of our threats and test it against our systems. It's that same lack of trust that you actually have to have with a partner and competitor nations, and, and that's what keeps us all safe. Right. So it's so it – is, are you saying there's no kind of technical fix for putting the S-400 and the F-35 in a theater together and giving somebody access to both of them that wouldn't yeah, so in, compromise? In, in the world of scruples, you would think contractors have the least amount of scruples. And so if you're selling a product, you'd sell it to everybody you possibly could. And in talking with the most senior officials within Lockheed Martin, they want no part of that pairing. That's how how significant and how sensitive an issue is this is. Lockheed Martin does not want to sell the F-35 to Turkey if they get the S-400 threat. So let me ask you, the other question is then, um, the F-30, the Turkey is one of the partners in the F-35 production. They actually produce it part is. of the parts. So if, if you're not just going to say, 
we're not going to we're 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 not going to give you F thirty five, but if you say well we're just not going to allow you to participate in the program anymore, what what is what does that mean for Turkey and and their industrial base, and what does that mean for uh, for the program? Well, there are a couple of options here. You can cut Turkey out of this completely, which is an option. And and the federal government is now considering that, actually eliminating them and cutting off the part supplies that uh, that Turkey right now is supplying four uh, different parts that nobody else in the world makes and a handful of others that uh, several other uh, competitor nations or actually a uh, uh, supplier nations do uh, give us. And so by cutting them off completely, we actually shoot ourselves in the foot uh, in the near term. Long term, we'll find another uh, manufacturer that can make these parts. But Turkey right now is supplying these parts, uh, and they're doing a good job of that. So this is one where the government can stop the, the delivery of the F-35 to that nation and then allow them to continue to uh, deliver these parts while we develop maybe another uh, option in another country, or we can cut it off cold turkey, and then you might have a, a, a supply issue for this system, which is going to be ramping up in production and parts demands over the next several years. So I don't want to put words in your mouth, but but basically what you're saying is this is a real problem. It's a real problem, and it's going to take some real finesse to work this out the right way. The the hard and fast answer is Turkey buys the S-400. We move in a different direction with regard to selling them that platform. We do not sell them that platform. So I'm going to – when the, the congressman gets here, I'm going to sandbag him and ask him how we're going to solve this politically and, <laughs> and the role Congress is going to play. But, but, but I – and I would like your comment on this because I'm not going to ask you to – to do the diplomacy here, but having said all the things you just said, this isn't necessarily like the showdown at the OK Corral, right? That there's no like one specific point in time where, you know, because there are a number of things both sides could do to stretch out, change, modify, move this, right? Where they're not forced to kind of make this kind of Manichaean decision where you're, you know, a NATO ally is in or out of a program. Is that fair? That's fair. So Turkey has not accepted delivery of the S-400. They have made every um, verbal statement that said they are going to accept it this summer. And if they delay that, we can continue delivering Turkish F-16s to Luke Air Force Base where they can go in the production of pilots out there and actually help us out in that process. And once it's resolved, assuming that Turkey goes down the path of not buying the S-400, we could move those aircraft to Turkey. And, and I also send the U.S. government as, and Turkey have reopened discussions about purchasing Patriot. Is that and I think that's a wise discussion. What threat uh, is Turkey facing that they need the S-400 system? It's a very capable system, has a long range, but the Patriot has a significant range. If the United States was going to attack Turkey, maybe they might need the uh, S-400, but we have no intent. That's not even in the discussion. What other country would have the capability of doing that? Maybe Russia. And then you wouldn't want a Russian system to right. So for other guests who walked in, yes, we know this is not Mike McCall. Um, uh, the <laughs> congressman's been, been delayed on some votes. And uh, so J.V. Venable, who's our Air Force expert at the Heritage Foundation, are just talking about some of his recent experiences that kind of touch in some of the same areas we're going to um, talk to Congressman McCall about. One more question about this, and then I will move off to another topic, which is to just folks really understand just what's really at stake here. What's the difference from a perspective of like a, a, a turkey is what's the difference between the kind of capabilities they would get with an F-35 and the kind of capabilities they would get with an S-400? 
And what's the real trade-off here? Well, you get an offensive capability with the F-35, and you get a system that can actually detect, sort, and pass information in a large measure across a broad spectrum of of other tactical assets and strategic assets that are out there. The F-35 is a system of systems. It's a communicator, and it is a striker. And it's a, it's a facilitator uh, along with its extraordinary capabilities in combat. It's an offensive system more than anything else. The S-400 is a defensive system. The defensive system that is networked into all of the other S-400s that are out there. And one of the things that Turkey will give up as India would give up if they bought the S-400, is the uh, the ownership of their airspace, meaning Russia would likely know every movement that was taking place in their country. So it's a it's a trade-off, and I'm I'm not sure why Turkey is brokering this unless they're just trying to look to get a better deal out of the United States in another way. So is maybe well, yeah, we'll take a question actually. So hang on a second. So is maybe one way out of this is I don't want to say face saving because you know that's up to politicians, but if the U.S. And, and Turkey just kind of put the whole thing on pause and say, let's have an integrated bilateral discussion about the future of, of um, airspace control and defense and security uh, in the region and, and then move on from there. And maybe that's a way to kind of allow them to kind of work through the reasonable uh, re- real options in, the, in, a, in a way that allow both countries to really un- ensure that they're, they're – uh, their, um, their, their security requirements are being met. Jim, I think that's the perfect line. And I'm not just, just saying that because you're my boss. He's actually my boss's boss. But, um, but it's the right way of brokering this. And there's no hard and fast lines. There's no timeline that has to be met in this. If we defer the acceptance of the S-400, we can go down the negotiation path. But if they accept the S-400, it's going to be really hard to recover. Yeah, so once point. an S-400 is operational – then the whole issue of an F-35 and an S-400 in the same space becomes problematic. Is that yes, sir. So is this a question related to this particular issue? Great. Do we have a microphone? Or here we are? We'll just repeat your, your question. Uh, uh, okay. So the microphone guy's not here, but, but go ahead. Yeah, we had Sean here actually doing a book event a couple of weeks ago. So you can, And you can see it online, heritage.org. Great. <laughs> And you, we hear, you were here for that talk, right? So, so just for folks who maybe couldn't hear the question because we didn't have the microphone out here yet. Um, so the question is really, so Sean McFate, author, uh, came out with this book, kind of some future defense recommendations. And one of his criticisms is less conventional platforms, less planning for conventional war, more planning for hybrid warfare, and trading off kind of F-35 capabilities for other things like more special forces. So maybe the question to you is the whole – the logic of that and also, you know, what does the F-35 bring to the table that's – that, that makes it something maybe the, the United States doesn't want to trade off. Okay. I, I love the question, and I was here when Sean was talking. Um, Sean basically has a left or right kind of thought process. Prepare for 
uh, big war or prepare for the wars that we've been fighting for a while. And he thinks that we ought to move in that direction. The F-35 is a little bit uh, counter to that discussion because it's so expensive. In Sean's argument, Sean's numbers were so far off with the F-35 that they weren't worth addressing. The cost per flying hour, the cost per platform, he's actually using numbers that were during the heavy R&D days and, the, and his cost per flying hour are uh, inflated by almost 30% over what the F-35 is. The truth is uh, for the F-35, I wish there was somebody who was running alongside of the F-35 making Lockheed Martin compete and making these two platforms better and less less expensive. But by itself, uh, Lockheed Martin has done a really good job of driving down the cost, and they've delivered an exceptional platform. The F-35, the pilots, in their words, think that this is the most dominant multi-role fighter that's ever come across the planet, and not an F-15C model, F-16, F-15E or A-10 pilot would ever want to go back to their previous platforms. They know even if they fought themselves in the other airplane, whichever they always picked the F-35 over over that platform. Going back to Sean's argument is, um, do we need to prepare and engage for that low-level threat, or do we need to prepare for that next level, level of war and that next uh, global competitor in that conflict? The answer is pretty easy. Um, we, we can flex and do the low-intensity conflict thing bad for a while and not hurt the United States strategically. We have done it exceptionally well, I will say, over the last 15 or 20 years, the low-intensity conflict with uh, terrorist factions and the likes. We have done that very well, and, and kind of taking away the malign thought processes you hear across the board, we have done that well in spite of the fact that we had an armed force 20 years ago that was prepared for a major regional conflict with a near-peer competitor. We no longer have that force. We no longer have the force that's capable of dealing with a near-peer competitor. In talking with um, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff or any of the service chiefs, you're never going to hear them admit that. But right now, what we would have to do is take every combat unit, uh, fighter, bomber, tanker, and move them into a region like um, uh, if we were to go fight another Kuwait, if you will, go back to 1991, we have roughly a two-thirds of the assets that we had back then, and those assets are now 20 years older. We have done nothing to dilute the aging process of the aircraft. And so if you're going to bet and you say, I, I bet into the high-threat scenario, and we actually get 20 more years of low-threat scenario, we can overcome that in a heartbeat. But if you bet low-intensity conflict and you don't rebuild the military where, where we're able to actually wage, engage, and win in a, a fight against a near-peer competitor, that's something we may not be able to recover from. So the bet is always to the right on this one. And I suppose, yeah, the, I mean, the other point is that, you know, we have a, a, a just we – don't, we, we don't have a just-in-time industrial base anymore. So if you stop buying something, the industrial base that does that is just going to go away. Yes, sir. Like, good job. Thank you very much. So, so, I already introduced you, and you were great. <laughs> Thank you. So, um, we were uh, I, actually, if you, if you don't mind, I'm going to start with this question just so we have some continuity of the conversation, even though it's not on w one of the things that we talked about. Um, so, that was uh, JV Venable. JV's our our uh, um, Air Force um, 
expert at Heritage, and I brought him in. Um, so we were filling some time, but it was some of the things that I thought would come up anyway. And so, not to you know throw a curveball at you, but the issue we were talking about was, you know, we have this situation which is in coming before your committee, where we have in one case a strategic partner, India, talking about buying S four hundred. In the other case, we have the Turks who have <clears throat> purchased but not taken possession of an S-400. And we have, a, 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 I think, a very clear U.S. policy now that this is just incompatible, that the S-400 and the F-35 are not going to be both controlled by an ally in, in the same theater. And uh, so I, I would be interested in, in kind of your take on this, Tug, and, and also the role that you think Congress is going to play, play in dealing with it. Well, I think that the distinction is that uh, Turkey is a NATO ally. And NATO was formed uh, initially as a uh, defense against the Soviet Union. And so when uh, Elliot Engel and I met with the foreign minister of Turkey, uh, we made the point that, uh, look, you're a NATO ally um, and you're buying Russian S-400s. And by the way, uh, that violates the Russian sanctions that Congress passed. Um, so to your question about what is Congress doing, Elliot and I have put together a resolution uh, that will be, um, I think, on the floor next week, uh, condemning uh, our NATO ally, Turkey, uh, for purchasing uh, the S-400 from the Russians, um, violating the Russian sanctions, violating really the NATO principle. Um, and we hope, um, I know in talking to the administration, putting a lot of pressure on them, uh, that they will back off of this deal and uh, we've offered, and we offer in the resolution, our Patriot missiles. That they could, they can buy our Patriot missiles and not the S-400. And I hope that's the path that they go down. I, you know, we'd hate to see Turkey go down this path. And it would be, I think, a dangerous move for them. Well, first of all, thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks, Jay. Um, uh, so the, what, I really wanted this to be, kind of be as open as possible. And you're willing to take some questions from the floor. Oh, sure. Right? Yeah. Sure. Uh, in the time that we have and really offer you the opportunity. I'm sorry I'm late. We no, have, that, we yeah. have votes. No, yeah, we were good with that. Votes uh, always get in the way. Yeah, no. And, uh, um, really give you a chance to kind of lay out what your agenda is for the committee. And I, and I, so if my questions don't get to that, please feel free to ignore them and, and talk, make sure we get that on the table. But I do have a couple of things that I, and I know we want to talk about. One is, an issue that's that's always been very close to you, which is the and and I think something this administration's actually done very well, which is the bilateral U.S.-Israeli relationship, which is really the cornerstone of our Middle East um, security structure and and uh, and and you know one of the things that 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 eats at that like an acid is this kind of BDS campaign. Yeah. And and I know that's something that you personally have taken a lot of interest in. And so so what's the role for Congress in in dealing with that? Well, one of the first bills I introduced um, with my new hat on as a leader on foreign affairs uh, was the Israeli assistance package, the Jordanian assistance package, the anti-Assad sanctions, and then the BDS, the boycott divestment sanctions uh, bill. And um, the Senate, uh, in very short order, uh, introduced a companion and passed it uh, in February. I... Uh, thought Elliot Engel's very pro-Israel and he's very anti-Iran. I, th I thought this thing would have been marked up in a short order, just like the Senate. We had 77 senators vote for this bill, bipartisan. And um, unfortunately, that did not happen. Uh, we could not get this to a markup. So now we're using a procedural mechanism 
which is called a discharge petition. If we get 218 signatures, we can put this bill on the floor for a vote. And so that, that's where it stands right now. Um, <clears throat> I think certainly, I mean, Israel's in a rough neighborhood, and uh, we have to defend and assist Israel. They're also, from, their, from a technology cybersecurity standpoint, they're very advanced. Uh, they're a great ally for us in the region. Um, it's a $30 billion package over 10 years. We also have, have to assist, I think, our Jordan ally and then deal with Assad and, and his regime, what he's doing. So we're hopeful that we'll get the signatures. This, this will go forward. BDS is uh, my my home state has already passed legislation. It basically just says that any state that wants to uh, not play along with BDS um, can can do that. And, and so uh, – uh, kind of states' rights almost issue and no federal preemption. So I'm gonna I want to do a lightning round to try to get at the, the kind of the top issues, and then if you're okay, we'll just throw it up on the floor. But before I do that, um, you were an outstanding leader in in the House Homeland Security Committee, and one of the things that took up more than a little bit of time was this issue of border security and, and immigration enforcement, uh, and, mm-hmm. and which also impacts on what you do about legal immigration reform, whether that's an injustice. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've, you've, you've been, you've been, I think, up and close and personal with this issue almost more than anybody in Congress the last couple of years. And I'm just kind of interested in your reaction to the president's speech yesterday and where you think this whole debate's going. Well, you know, I was there uh, yesterday. I, I met with uh, Jared Kushner, who put this plan together. With uh, Leader McCarthy uh, yesterday, um, and um, you know it's it's a tough issue. Like anytime you try to tackle this, it, you have you get battle scars. I, um, as you know, Chairman Goodlatte and I had a bill, uh, the Goodlatte McCall bill that had border security, merit-based immigration, legalized DACA, and unfortunately, it, it failed by twenty votes. I could I could. I could do a <clears throat> sort of a post-mortem on that that would take 30 minutes. Um, there were some, I think, things that were not done right. Um, well, I think messaging-wise, um, it, uh, there, there it could have been done better. Uh, and it's unfortunate because we had the opportunity to get this thing done. I think in this Congress with, with Pelosi and having lost the majority, I, I don't see a whole lot of prospect for that. I, I, I think the bill that <clears throat> the president's outlining now is a very sort of positive, intelligent perspective, and that is they take my border security bill, which secures the border, and then they, they reform the visa process where it's not a random lottery, it's not a random process, but it's more merit and skill based. And a little bit of the, I think they, they kind of broke a little bit on this. I've always been a proponent of high skill bill. Where they've kind of broken, I think, in, in a positive direction is to allow people who are educated in the United States, particularly engineers that we need and scientists, to be able to stay in the United States and not have to go back to their country of origin, uh, but rather stay here. And so I, I think it's a very smart uh, immigration uh, plan and, and um, smart border. Technology is a big piece of it that I've been pushing a lot. I, President's kind of backed off this 30-foot concrete wall, 2,000 miles to board fencing, and then technology where it works, like in my state, with a river and canyons and all that. You know, and so uh, I think I think we're getting there. Uh, but do we have the votes in the House under the current political climate? Uh, I think it'd be very difficult. Yeah. 
Well, I think the president talked about the end of his speech. He said, look, I'd love to do this. But if they aren't going to do this, I'd love to come back in 2020 and do this. So it'll be interesting, you know, as we kind of heard the reaction from Washington yesterday, which was kind of all predictable, right? Mm. But but they're not the American people. And so it would be really interesting to see how the American people react to kind of taking what you did and adding some stuff to it. And if, if people actually – if there's a if there's a, a real constituency there for kind of uh, this reform agenda. But then you – so you were one of the building blocks for that. So we'll see how it goes. And I, you know, I really applaud Jared Kushner for taking this on. He brought a very intelligent – I think the language is better. Uh, and it's it, – to your point, it may be more of a messaging document, more of a campaign document going into 2020 and let the people decide what they want. Mm-hmm. All right. So lightning round. Um, let's start with Iran because that's – we're going to have a war, and if, and, and if not, what do you want to tell us about Iran? Uh, I hope we don't have a war. Uh, Iran's kind of like Iraq and Afghanistan put together, and it would be very uh, difficult. I, I think, um, however, uh, they're desperate. I think the, the, the president, I think, made the right move pulling out of the JCPOA, the Iran deal. The sanctions are having an impact. Uh, they're getting more desperate now, and now they're asking the Europeans, look, Abide uh, by the deal, or we're going to start rebuilding the Iraq facility. That's our nuclear uh, facility in 60 days. Um, and at the same time, we have this specific incredible threat against our military in, in Iraq using proxies. Uh, the head of the Quds Force met with uh, the Iranian uh, Shia militia, militias and Hezbollah and said, uh, prepare for war. And so – in response to that intelligence, we have put uh, uh, several of our ships into the Persian Gulf, along with everything that comes with it, all the assets, um, to adequately res- respond. I think we can hit their nuclear uh, facilities without putting troops on the ground. I would not recommend an occupation of Iran. But you feel okay where we are right now in terms of – I do. I think it's kind of like when you get caught with your hand in the cookie jar and you, you take it out. Yeah. Iran got, they got, they know that we know. And once, once they know that we know, I think they're going to kind of back off a little bit. I don't think it's in their best interest to, to do that. They know that the, and, and you know, you have a hundred thousand tons of diplomacy going into the Persian Gulf and that would be our, our, our naval uh, ships. Um, that's a strong statement. Okay, so two more real quick and then we'll. Uh, throw it open to the floor. So please, if you have your questions ready, be ready. And if you have a question, if you just raise your hand and wait to be recognized and just state your name and affiliation, uh, that would be awesome. And also wait for the microphone so you could get your, um, get your, everybody can hear your question. So Venezuela, uh, where are we? Uh, where are we going? And uh, is there a role for the Congress there? Well, I took a, a trip down to Cucuta with Elliot uh, Engle. 50,000 people cross from Venezuela into Colombia every day. Three to five thousand stay in Colombia. It's, it's unsustainable. It's a the biggest humanitarian crisis in the Western Hemisphere, and it's all caused by one man, and that's Maduro, the socialist dictator. And if anything can speak to the downfalls of socialism, to those who tout the the greatness of socialism, take a look at Venezuela. Look at the destruction. They have destroyed what was one of the richest most prosperous nations in the Western Hemisphere by bringing socialism, Chavez and Maduro into Venezuela. Where are we now? You know, Guaido is a legitimate president. Uh, Maduro, um, there was a, we thought, a coup that was going to take place where the 
head of the Supreme Court, the head of the intelligence. They let the opposition leader go. Uh, Maduro was actually on a tarmac fly, getting ready to fly to Havana when the Russians intervened and persuaded him to stay in Venezuela. And yet there was a lot of talk on the, on the left about, you know, United States intervention. The only intervention, foreign inter- intervention I see are the Cubans that have 20,000 security officials in Venezuela propping up the military in Maduro and the Russians. The Russians have put military assets in, the likes of which we have not seen since the Cuban Missile Crisis. So this is a big deal, Jay. And and we have to resolve this. And democracy, there's a lot at stake. If if democracy and the people of Venezuela prevail, it will impact Cuba, Nicaragua, Bolivia. The rest of Latin America is actually going, I think, in the right direction in a pro-U.S. Uh, um, you know, alliance. So last question in the lightning round, um, China, two big issues are where are we going with the trade negotiations and the whole debate over um, Huawei and, and the executive order and you know, what we should do about the Chinese investment in 5G infrastructure or, or, or just more broadly in, in, in Chinese uh, infrastructure in the United States. So where, where, where's the committee on that? Where, where are you guys going to be? We're heavily engaged, passed uh, several bills to, to uh, deal with this issue. China uh, announced her One Belt, One Road initiative. It's it's global domination by military and economic power uh, by 2030, by the year 20. They're not, uh, you know, it's been a bit deceptive, but I think people are waking up to the fact that they are everywhere. When I go to Latin America, to Africa, they're there. And what they do is it's called predatory lending or debt traps where they, they, they loan. You know, they come in under the auspices of we're going to invest. We're going to build roads, you know, we'll build ports. But the problem is it's a debt trap, and then they end up taking over these facilities without one shot fired. A good example, Sri Lanka. They built a port in Djibouti. They own both ends of the Panama Canal. Remember, Teddy Roosevelt, we built that canal. Now the Chinese own it. That is incredible to me. I was in El Salvador. They were going to put two ports in El Salvador Fortunately, the incoming president has decided that's not not a good move. Africa, they're all over Africa. How do we persuade these countries to reject the Chinese? We have to explain it's not in their best interest. It's going to be long-term pain for you. But we also have to compete, and we're not competing as well. And I passed a – we passed the BUILD Act to put OPIC on steroids. We passed my bill, the Champion American Business Through Diplomacy Act, to – make sure that we're advocating for American interest abroad. The technology piece is what keeps me up at night the most, and that is artificial intelligence, quantum computing, cybersecurity, and 5G. 5G allows the Chinese, and if you look at the global map, map Jay, it's, it's about 50% of the world right now where China is literally moving in with their 5G. They're like tentacles moving in. And once the 5G is put in, they control. They control the data. They control everything. And we have to compete with them on 5G. We have AT&T and Verizon and some other companies. But, you know, we have to be – we can't just say that the Chinese are evil. And they are. They steal intellectual property. They have tech transfers, blueprints into our Pentagon – um, they steal our cyber weapons, but the fact is we have to compete with them to win 
And uh, that has to be an investment that the United States is prepared to make with the uh, with the private sector. So where's my first question, Guy? Where do you go? Oh, there he is in the back. Okay. So um, I promised him first, so we'll go back there uh, in the last one. But while we're getting the microphone there, so we, we've hit on China. We've hit on um, Latin America. We've hit on uh, BDS. So are there other things on, on the committee and on your agenda this year that you really want folks to know is coming down? Yeah, I think like, when I was chairman of Homeland, I, um, it was an interesting time. Uh, it, was, it was frightening. Yeah, I saw the rise of ISIS and the caliphate in Iraq and Syria. I warned the administration at that time of the threat, and the external operations were uh, frightening. I mean, they were real. We stopped about 95%. Uh, in my threat briefings, I worked with the FBI, intelligence community, and homeland. Only about 5% happened, and those are the ones you know about. Um, with the collapse of the caliphate, the threat briefings have gone way down. But that's not to say the threat's not still there. They are embedded. And if you talk to the military, it's moving into the Sahel region, which is sort of the middle belt of uh, Africa, destabilized nations. Lindsey Graham and I introduced the Global Fragility Act to bring USAID, state, and defense together to try to stabilize this region. It's more preventative than just reacting. Because if, if we can't win on the preventative diplomacy side, that's when you put your military in. And so the DOD is very interested uh, in this um, program and, uh, you know, as a mine, I think uh, it's the right approach. Okay, so look at the back. And again, if you would wait for the microphone, state your name and affiliation and ask your question. Go ahead, sir. Uh, I'm Farhad Puladi with the Voice of America Persian Service. So my question is about Iran. Um, President Trump has said uh, as recent as today that he doesn't uh, seek war with Iran. Is this a clarification uh, of the U.S. position, or is it a change of U.S. policy towards Iran altogether? And that's, if I may ask a follow-up to what you said in the last part of your uh, remarks on Iran, you mentioned uh, nuclear facilities uh, could be bombed or targeted without sending U.S. ground troops. Can you elaborate on that part, too? Thank you. Well, I, I, don't, think, I don't think we... You know, look, we want to put maximum pressure on Iran so that the Iranian people can rise above this uh, theocracy of oppression. I think 80% of the Iranian people do not agree with the Ayatollah. They do not agree with this theocracy that's oppressing them. We want to give them every ability to, to just like Venezuela, the people of Venezuela, the people of Iran. Um, but we are not going to sit back idly if if Iran hits our military. If Iran strikes our military, we will respond. If Iran starts to build their nuclear facility, we will respond to that. And I think that's that's kind of the policy. Uh, we're not going to allow Iran to become a nuclear power. And um, I think getting out of the JCPOA has has had a very good crippling effect on their economy. It's putting pressure on them. And again, what I, I see it, what they're doing right now is weakness and desperation. And I think those are all positive signs in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Congressman, uh, I'm Sufi Lagari with the Sindhi Foundation. One country I really always try to remind to the Congress and the officials, its name is Pakistan. Pakistan treats to the American, look at in the past, the uh, uh, 
the uh, journalist, they killed the journalist over there, Daniel Pearl, and they founded America, the bin Laden, and the terrorist Hafiz Saeed is still freely moving over there, and Pakistan treating the over there Sindhis and Baloch very badly. China is the friend and in investing the Gwadar, mm-hmm. and more Israeli and American flags burn in Pakistan. I don't know what is the leadership like you. I want one congressman anti-Pakistan in the Congress, like Dana Rabaker. I mm-hmm. hope you will do that job. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Dana's a good friend of mine. I, Dana always talked about Dr. Freedy. Dr. Freedy helped us get bin Laden, and now he's in a Pakistani prison. I don't think we put enough pressure to get him out. You know, I was in Abbottabad about a month after we killed bin Laden. And there was a, a feeling of uh, embarrassment and anger in Pakistan uh, at that time. Uh, and we met President Zardari at the time, and he said, your CIA never told me he was in my country. Maybe so, but the ISI certainly, I think, knew. I mean, he's in Abbottabad, which is like the West Point Academy. Um, I think they harbored him. And uh, the ISI is complicit with the extremists. Uh, they're not helping us in Afghanistan at all. Um, they are a threat to in- India, as you know, in the Kashmir. Um, and we have the aid, and the, the tricky part about our aid is predominantly it's there to secure the nuclear arsenal that, that AQ Khan built. AQ Khan exported that to Iran and North Korea. Thank you. You know, he's uh, kind of the Muslim father of the atomic oh, bomb. So we're going here. I just wanted to say that I, I was thinking about that whole reference between. I know the staff college is there, like the reference between Abbottabad and West Point. But I think about my first year at West Point, I actually did feel terrorized. So maybe that's <laughs> maybe that's actually not a bad analogy. But yeah. Please. Uh, as someone who's remodeling their house, I hope the tariffs end with China. Um, but I wanted to uh, yeah. stick with. Uh, uh, with the South Asia, uh, given the terrorist attacks in Sri Lanka, uh, the recent declaration by ISIS claiming a province in India, which is going through a, an election right now, as you know, uh, and the increase of uh, Islamic terrorist activities in India and seems to be spreading into South Asia. Is that the next front in the global war on terror? And what can we do to support U.S. allies like India and others in the region to confront and be on, who are literally on the front lines of that of that war? Yeah, and I think, um, look, with the collapse of the caliphate in Iraq and Syria, uh, as I said, uh, they they cannot conduct external operations from space they cannot govern. I have an ISIS license plate in my office, Islamic State in Syria and Arabic, and it's a license plate. It shows you the extent that they actually – Were you driving there? They governed. A Delta Force guy gave Oh, yeah, okay. The owner is no longer with us, <laughs> okay. but uh, – Fortunately, but to your point, they're they're going underground there. But where they're popping their ugly heads up are in in I think in Asia, as you point out, and particularly the Sahel, as I talked about earlier. This is where when you talk to the Defense Department, they'll tell you this is going to be the next hot spot. If we don't start dealing with it now, then we're going to have to deal with these external operations that kill Americans in the United States. And so, from a homeland perspective. Um, and this is where Lindsay and I are on the same page. We, we can do a lot of good things right now to try to stabilize these countries. I think with India, and yeah, they had the Mumbai attacks, uh, and, and so it's nothing new to them. And certainly in the Philippines, there's a Al-Qaeda, ISIS, uh, Malaysia, uh, and Indonesia, you know, as well. 
I don't think it's going to, I've always said it's not going to go away in our lifetime, this radical Islamist uh, behavior. But I, I will tell you, I, I do, I feel safer uh, just because the caliphate's been destroyed. All right, so we're going to go here, but just to, not to put words in your mouth. So you're ma- you make a distinction between where they can organize kind of a one-off attack in Sri Lanka and India and places where you think they could put down the infrastructure to put in sustained campaigns of operations and that's why your focus is more on on kind of the Sahel. Is that fair? Yeah, I think any power vacuum, uh, and we saw that uh, in Afghanistan with uh, 9-11. We saw it uh, in Iraq and Syria. Uh, anytime they can put down a, a governed space and can control it, then that's where they can conduct external operations. AQAP was the one that we always kept our eye on, that we were really worried about aviation attacks and laptop bombs and that kind of thing. Um had a lot of scientists that worked at Mosul University, uh, but they have uh, proven to be not very effective, and that's a good thing. Right. So we're going to take two questions here in the middle, please. Yeah. Um, my name is Sang Bin Lee. I'm a reporter from the Radio Free Asia Korean Service. I have uh, two questions about North Korea. Uh, South Korean government announced today that they will provide over $8 million in humanitarian aid to the North Korea by international organization. Uh, they also gave permission to South Korean businessmen to visit Gaesong Industrial uh, Complex. So do you support this measure made by South Korean government? And second question is about uh, North Korean's um, provocation. As you know, North Korean warned the U.S. to change uh, position by the end of this year. Otherwise, the United going to be get some consequences. Yeah. And then North Korea launched uh, a short missile, range missile last week. So how do you see the North Korean reaction and then how do you see the prospect of deadlocked, current deadlocked negotiation between the United States and North Korea nuclear negotiation? Right. That's a good question. I, I look, I'm all for humanitarian aid, uh, but I think it go, it flies in the face of the maximum pressure campaign. Uh, the South Korean President Moon has, um, um, there's a split within South Korea or the right way to proceed with North Korea. I, I think the maximum pressure got Kim Jong-un to the table. Um, I think we have to engage with them. We have to have conversations with them uh, because the stakes are just too high. Over the last three decades and, and presidencies, we've made concessions to North Korea, now to the point where they have an intercontinental ballistic missile with a nuclear warhead capable of hitting the continental United States. So we have to engage with them. And the question is how to get them to stand down. And what's interesting to me is, is it all or nothing, right? I mean, is it, is it going to be something where denuclearization completely or do you do this incrementally? And I think the South Koreans would probably tell you doing it overnight is not realistic, that you have to take an incremental approach to this and negotiate it piece by piece to the point where they completely de-escalate. And uh, I don't know. I mean, it, this is a big question mark, and it's a crystal ball that I don't have an answer to. I I do see some merit in the incremental approach, though, because I don't think, you know, you need a face-saving measure with any dictator. And dictatorships never uh, are easy to negotiate with. Uh, but I think you need a face-saving measure for him to get out of this. I think he probably would want to get out of this if we promised a brighter future, an economic brighter future for him and his people. Uh, but remember, the biggest thing they have is they're, they're a player. They're in the nuclear, you know, nuclear, uh, small club of nuclear powers now. 
And to get them to concede and, and give that up is very, very difficult. We didn't work with uh, Pakistan, and it didn't. And, and then with Iran, we're not uh, we're kind of failing on that one too. And I, it's very difficult to get him to give that up. So before I go to your question, let me just interject real quick. Um, quick three part, quick three part question, right? Because part of the world that we don't want to forget: um, Western Balkans, um, Black Sea, which is increasingly an issue that we wind up talking a lot about, Black Sea security, yeah. and Ukraine. Yeah, I was over in Ukraine. Um, I think now we have a, a comedian entertainer as president now. It's the latest I heard. Yeah. Right, Jay? Well, no, he's a politician now. <laughs> Maybe the president <laughs> started. No script. Trying. Yeah. Yeah. There's no script. It's like a lot of entertainers winning presidency. So, uh, uh, you know, uh, we're looking at him closely to see. I, I think he had some tie to a Russian oligarch. We want to make sure. That he, he's not tied to any, uh, he has no Russian influence. What happened in Crimea and the Balkans? What happened, um, and what's happening in Ukraine is absolutely, uh, devastating. The cyber attacks that they perpetrate every day hitting Ukrainians is massive. It, it's like a playing ground for the Russians. They test their weapons in Ukraine to see how effective, uh, they are. Just one, I don't want to digress, but, Maersk, there was a, a bank in Ukraine hit by the non-Petua virus that Russia hit the bank. The bank, um, Maersk Shipping had an account at the bank. It destroyed 20 years of data at Maersk Shipping and shut down the Los Angeles port. Just to give you some magnitude of what cyber operations uh, can do. So we're very worried about that. We're worried about the naked aggression of Putin who wants to regain the glory of the old Soviet empire. I think he wants to be sort of Stalin-esque. He thinks that Gorbachev and Yeltsin are traitors to his country. Um, and um, we have to keep a careful check. And the Black Sea is part of this. They're building this bridge that will, that will literally block off U- the Ukrainian port into the Black Sea. Um why are they in Syria? They want the ports into the Mediterranean. They they dominate now with the Russian uh, submarines, uh, the Mediterranean. And, and so, and the Turks will say, we have to deal with the Russians because you weren't there. Mm-hmm. Obama decided not to, we weren't there, so the Russians are there now. Yeah. And that's, Syria is probably the most complicated foreign policy challenge of our lifetime. Yeah. But but you would see like the Ukraine, Western Balkans, Black Sea, the U.S. has to be engaged here because that's an active area of competition with, and, and key to the stability. Of- I would argue that uh, – and I've supported legislation to arm Ukraine with lethal uh, weapons. Yeah, sorry. Please. Because there's a kinetic war on the on the eastern front of Ukraine yeah. against the Russians. And then we'll go there and then we'll go to the back, sir. Yeah. I'm Ben Rolls with the Friends Committee on National Legislation, a Quaker lobby in the public interest. And we've really appreciated your leadership, Chairman McCall, on the Global Fragility Act. I think it's a great step toward um, strengthening USG capacity on preventing conflict in fragile states. I'm just wondering what other steps you think Congress and the administration can take on the conflict prevention front. Well, and thank you. And I know the one campaign has uh, been very supportive of this initiative and, uh, Lindsay and I are uh, pushing. This is this is going to pass. Um, and Lindsay and I were just over in Africa to assess the situation, and it, it is a um, you know this is going to be the largest populated continent in the world. And you look at climate change; it's going to there will be droughts in Central Africa as well. 
that will exacerbate the problem, I think, as well. And so we need to, we really need to address this right now. Um, because time and time again, when we don't, then we have to put our military in, you know, with, uh, as Mattis said, I'd rather, I'd rather, uh, fully fund the State Department than have to buy more bullets and have to kill people. Now, I, I think you know, you're spot on and it's a prevention piece. We, we've done a good job defending the United States from terror attacks. We've done a very good job offensively killing the terrorists. The piece we haven't done very well, in my judgment, is what you're talking about, and that's a prevention piece. And that's what the Global Fragility Act is designed to do. So we're here, and then we'll go to the – there was a question in the back, yeah. Well, thank you for coming. Uh, my name is Mitsuo Nakai, Reagan Foundation. Uh, Regarding North Korea, once again, uh, along with the previous questions, uh, where do we stand on the missile defense? Uh, I do know Japan is trying to cooperate with us. Yeah, I, I, I uh, with the Thad, uh, uh, the, you know, the Thads uh, we uh, putting into South Korea. Uh, Japan is very concerned. I mean, they are in the bullseye, uh, and so I think we need to arm. Japan with the same sort of defense missile system uh, that we have with the South Koreans. You know, one point going back to your question that we uh, I, I founded the Childhood Cancer Caucus. Um, we passed a lot of good bills. We've uh, now gotten to the point where 80% of children with cancer survive. You go to Africa, 90% of children in Africa die. 90% mortality rate. PEPFAR you know, the HIV program we passed, and uh, there are clinics all over Africa now. Texas Children's has a Global Hope Initiative to bring uh, cancer uh, medications to Africa to help save them just like PEPFAR saved uh, a generation. And um, I'm working with the committee, and I'm, I've been working with the ambassador of PEPFAR. I've been working with Bristol Meyer Squibbs uh, and uh, whole host of St. Jude's and, and all these uh, stakeholders to um, lay off the predicate of PEPFAR to bring in these medicines to save these African children that uh, could be easily cured. They just don't have access. So we'll go to the bike. And then being the nonpartisan guy that I am, if there's a question on the far left, I, I, I'd be happy to take that if there's a hand over there. So, yeah. Uh, Henry, how we were here. Retired. Yeah, well, that's good. <laughs> Uh, this is Henry Hedka, retired government. Uh, recently, I happened to stop at Navy Credit Union, and suddenly up on the screen comes a, an event, uh, kind of a surprise, that Waikiki Beach is now being threatened by the rising sea. Uh, it's sort of, you know, a southern part of our nation. In some ways, it's closer to the equator. In 2008, I came up with the centrifugal force theory on the rise of the equatorial seas due to the melting ice at either end at the Arctic and our flow towards the equator due to centrifugal force. Uh, I wondered, have you thought of addressing this issue in Congress? Uh, plenty has been sent forward. My plan, I, I've been to Academy of Sciences. They've looked at it. They say there's too much engineering and trying to flood a an area like Katara Depression, which is below sea level, could create a huge lake like Lake Ontario. Uh, there's other ideas. Uh, I wondered uh, what exactly is the latest on this. Uh, there's Miami Beach, of course, which is a, a huge city in our nation, which is also threatened by flooding. So far, only like 20 days a year are critical due to king tide. 
where the moon lines up with the sun and creates a higher tide, and thus the sea level is rising excessively. Yeah, I, I, I think, uh, you know, I managed uh, this climate change. You know, the Paris Agreement, I think, had a lot of flaws to it where we had to uh, comply, but the Chinese had till 2025, and they were burning a coal plant every week, and their emissions are – you know, a serious problem. Not that we shouldn't negotiate with foreign governments on this. Just to back up, you know, I had a NASA scientist in my office who sort of walked me through. He said, I'm not a policymaker. I'm just a scientist. But let me show you what the data shows and what it what will happen, you know, in the next 20 to 40 years. And um, it was very persuasive that it is changing. Um, I think there's a tendency – for some on my side of the aisle, put their head in their sand and pretend like it wasn't happening, but it, but it is. And so I think the question is how, how to deal with this in a, in a sensible way uh, that makes sense. Uh, you know, and I think I really, you know, I've got a lot of technology. I live in Austin, great tech companies. I really think technology and innovation is going to be the, the key to this um, in terms of lowering carbon emissions uh, from the atmosphere. You go up to Alaska, you see the glaciers falling in. Yeah, the Arctic Circle, the Chinese are now looking at how can they uh, do shipping across, uh, you know, the Arctic. Yeah, because it's breaking up. I mean, to me, that that speaks volumes. So we have to do something. It's happening. And the question is how much is man-made, how much is a natural cycle. But we do know that some of it is man-made. And so we have to, in terms of reducing emissions, um, you know, I talk to people about like a Manhattan project for clean energy. Why can't we have nuclear power? And unfortunately, Three Mile Island and Chernobyl were disasters and it set back our nuclear program, you know, decades. However, I think it could be done safely today with zero uh, emissions. And so we need to really be looking at all this stuff. And I don't think this is no longer like a Democrat-Republican thing. I know that the Dems are all in favor and the Republicans are Neanderthal, head in the sand. I, I'm I, just looking at me. You know, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm not even a Republican. <laughs> but I really think, uh, I think, you know, I think people are kind of getting this now. This is going to be our last question. Good. Oh, hi. My name is Anthony Angelini. I'm a, an intern for Kevin McCarthy. Oh, I probably shouldn't have said that. Huh? That's all right. Um, He's a great guy. <laughs> well, you're Italian. You have an Italian name, so right. <laughs> so, um, you mentioned Chinese debt trap policy strategy, um, especially in Latin America and in Africa. But I think that the Chinese are, um, a lot of their multilateral agreements are long term and, uh, not debt traps like, uh, their takeover the port of Haifa in Israel, um, which is where the Sixth Fleet is right now. Yeah. And, um, how do you reconcile cybersecurity, especially if we're stationing our military in a Chinese port, um, as well as um, in terms of like Kushner's peace project with the West Bank and uh, in that region as well, especially if the Chinese have a greater interest in the Israeli economy? Does that mean they'll have a greater interest in humanitarian or philanthropic efforts in the West Bank. Right. I, I met with the Israeli ambassador yesterday. I, I asked him this question. I said, what's going on with China in your port? And he, he assured me that it's it, they don't own it. They, they, they help build it. But the problem is when they build this stuff, they end up taking it over. And we're seeing that time and time again. 
And I said, well, please reassure me on this one. You will not allow 5G in Israel. Israel's pretty good at cyber. I mean, they have a, they're extremely advanced. They have that cyber spark. Ben Gurion University at Beersheba that has the, uh, academia there. They have what would be our, like our, um, Silicon Valley and their military all in one incubator. Uh, they're, they're very advanced. They're a great ally for us on technology. Um, we have to respond on the 5G. I mean, I, I think, you know, I'm talking to your boss. We need to come up with a package that can compete with the Chinese on artificial intelligence, on quantum computing, on cybersecurity, and finally 5G. If you look at the global map, they, they are putting 5G in probably 50% of the world right now, which means they will dominate and control 50% of the data that comes out, and they put it in big data. So, I mean, this is going to have to be a public-private partnership, and we're going to have to invest at the federal level to compete. And I think people are just now waking up to the China threat. I mean, you didn't hear about a lot about this like two years ago. I knew about it, but a lot of people, I think everybody now realizes what's happening, uh, and they're waking up to the fact. And I, I think it's a call for action that we need to take in the I look forward to working with your boss. <laughs> yeah, I think this is a total bipartisan yeah. issue. You know? Yeah, one of the one of the, actually one of the interesting things we do is we do a, a U.S. India Israel trilateral, and the next one's actually in Washington later this year. But that's actually been a really good forum because it allows us to because I don't think anybody understands kind of the Chinese pressure better than the Indians. So bring the Indians and Israelis together, kind of get a deeper appreciation for what the challenges are of kind of managing Chinese investment. Things actually have been quite productive. And, and you're right. People are waking up to exactly the kind of issues you talked about. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I will give you the last word to say, you know, what are we – what's on your agenda that we have missed today? But we've covered so much ground on what the committee is working on, and this has just been so instructive and helpful. I'm, we're just really appreciative. Of that. But you, are there – what else do we need to know that's on your plate before we let you go? Well, I think in, in broad, I've covered a lot, but I think in, in broad terms, in terms of foreign policy, I, yeah, look at that Ken Burns documentary on Vietnam. And, you know, when you get your foreign policy wrong and you put the military in, uh, now the communist threat was real, but there was also about independence from China, independence from the French, and then we, the Americans came in. You got to get your foreign policy right before you put the military in. And that's what we're talking about in the Sahel in Africa. You gotta get the foreign policy right. Diplomats, when the diplomats fail, that's when we go to war. And I think part of it is projecting strength. I'm a Churchill guy. You know, he's that weakness invites aggression. He stood up to Hitler. He's visionary about Hitler. You know, I think Kennedy was, was strong against uh, communism and Reagan, peace through strength. Those are, those are axioms that I've kind of lived by in my uh, political you know, career. And I think at the end of the day, in the previous administration, I, 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 I saw this theme where our allies no longer trusted us and our enemies no longer feared us. And Condoleezza Rice gave me a good lecture. She said, you know, you want everybody to like you, but they're not all going to like you. And if they don't like you, you want them, um, you want them to fear you. Uh, you want to work with them. But you have to, you have to negotiate out of strength. I think this president has, uh, negotiated out of strength. And I, I think we're, we're changing our doctrine now where our allies like Israel now do trust us. We don't have the Iran deal. 
I mean, Israelis felt very slighted by that Iran deal. It, it terrified them. So our allies, I think, now do uh, trust us. And our enemies, yeah, I think like uh, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, uh, and Maduro do uh, fear us. And I, I think that that extends a, a strong foreign policy where we can get things uh, done to, to keep the world at peace, which is what we all want uh, you know, on this planet. So um, I don't know, it's going to be an interesting new journey for me. I mean, I've gone from terrorism, that's still involved in it now, to the entire world and foreign policy, and it's uh, it's uh, very interesting. Well, we wish you luck, and please join me in thanking the congressman for his Thank you very much.